This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now look, y'all, it is crazy outside. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you are working a nine to five, you're probably stressed out about keeping your nine to five. If you don't have a nine to five, you're probably in the middle of trying to get a new nine to five. Or maybe you made the crazy leap to be a full-time entrepreneur like me. You got the world on fire all around you, middle of election year. A lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's absolutely nuts, right? It's nuts outside. And I could definitely see, I'll speak for me. Look, for me, I know I be going to therapy on a regular basis. I believe in therapy, all right? Hashtag uh, black folks need therapy. Hashtag we all need therapy. We all need it. And for me, I can say if it wasn't for therapy being like an ongoing maintenance tool in my toolkit to help me stay level and help me realize that I'm okay, everything around me is okay, here's what I can control, that has been critical for me. And I would hope that if you have thought about therapy, and if, or if you haven't thought about therapy, shoot, let's say you're like, like I ain't got time for therapy, I got, I'm too busy trying to make sure that these plates keep on spinning, I hope that you check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's completely convenient, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, keyword licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is incredible. It's very challenging to move around and find the right therapist for you. The fact that BetterHelp is providing that as just part of your experience is incredible. So find your support, get the help you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash corp today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash corp, C-O-R-P. What's up, y'all? Zach, we live in corporate and happy MLK weekend. You know, if you're listening to this on a Saturday on the 16th, it's MLK Day weekend. Um, I hope that you're taking the time to breathe and give yourself some sort of respite from the chaos that is uh, this world today. And I also hope that you take some time to reflect on the work and words of MLK Jr. Um, the work that he was able to accomplish and really kind of dive into his philosophy. It's interesting how white America has whitewashed King into this um, all lives matter, very passive doormat of oppression and not this radical socialist revolutionary that he was um you know it's interesting because if you if you go off of like mainstream media it would lead you to believe that everyone loved dr king but the reality is is that he was hated honestly the same things that they say about black lives matter and various civil rights activists and the the movements towards black liberation that we have today they were saying the exact same thing and worse about martin luther king jr I think it's important to understand that, at least for me, as I look at his work, that he was focused on dismantling systems, right? Um, he wasn't really focused on getting a bag. He wasn't focused on looking like he was making progress. He was looking and really examining how these systems, mainly these capitalistic systems and these militaristic systems, over-index and frankly just exploit 
the poor, black and brown people specifically, but then the poor at large. And I think it's important that as we think about where we need to go, that we have to keep our mind and our eyes on the systems at play. Right. It's easy to zoom in on individuals. It's easy to zoom in on ticky tack. Oh, this person did this. This person did not do that. As opposed to the systems that create and sustain harm or create platforms by which folks can harm others and not be held accountable. Systems that even would benefit folks not being held accountable. Right. Like that's what's important is what are we doing about these systems at play today? And how do we dismantle those? Is like what role do we play in dismantling and then reimagining new systems? There's nothing wrong with using that word, y'all. Dismantle is not a bad word. We have to dismantle. We have to take we have to tear certain things down so we can reimagine and build certain things up. Right. It's okay. And I hope that, you know, at the very least, folks take the time to read a letter from a Birmingham jail at the very, very least. It's just so critical. Uh, We talk a lot about, you know, allyship and and the role that we should play. I mean, King was just so he's he's just a genius. Like he he outlined all of this already. I could go on and on and on. But anyway, my point is happy MLK Day weekend. Um, I'm really thankful if you're listening to this. Shout out to all the first and last time listeners. Shout out to uh, our sponsors because we have sponsors now. Y'all, did you hear the ads last week? We were reading ads. It's pretty, pretty dope, right? Uh, shout out to my wife. Shout out to Emery. Shout out to the team. Shout out to the access point and shout out to the group chat. Yo, the, our shows came back this week. Y'all like, come on. Y'all got to rock with us. Like we have some really incredible content that we're putting out. I'm hoping that you're checking it out. Check out the show notes. It's going to all be in there. Of course, it's a see it to be it. So the next thing you're going to hear is actually not going to be see it to be it. It's going to be we're going to tap in with Tristan. But then after that, we're going to go to see it to be it. And then we'll see you back here. Okay, talk to you soon. Hey, friends, you know what I don't miss at all? that vicious week before the period, feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me, bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with EstroControl from Happy Mama. EstroControl contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit, feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including EstroControl. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. 
This week, I want to discuss questions to ask in an informational interview as a follow-up to our tip on three ways to jumpstart networking in the new year. When you're conducting informational interviews, you want to create a list of questions to help guide the conversation and solicit information to help you in your career or throughout your job search process. The questions you choose should show your contact that you have a genuine interest in their career, the company they work for, and the industry at large. But you also don't want to try and stump your contact, making them feel embarrassed or uncomfortable. Steve Dalton, the author of the book, The Two-Hour Job Search, provides a framework called the Tiara Framework that helps structure your thoughts and help you better facilitate the conversation. Let's walk through it. First is trends. These questions help you get a bigger picture of the industry. A couple of examples of questions you might ask would be, what trends are most impacting your business or field right now? How do you think your business or field will change most dramatically in the next several years? Next is insight. The questions you ask here provide you with a better understanding of the position and employer. Here you can ask things like, what surprises you most about your job, your field, or your employer? What's the best lesson you've learned on the job? From there, you want to ask questions focused on advice. By asking these, your contact can provide you with some strategy tips. These questions would look like, what can I do right now to prepare myself for a career in this field? What do you know now that you wish you would have known when you were in my position? The R stands for resources. These questions provide your contact with an opportunity to give you next steps. You might want to ask, what resources should I be sure to look into next? What next steps would you recommend for someone in my situation? The last A stands for assignments. These questions can guide things you may want to include in your resume, cover letter, LinkedIn, or interview answers. A few examples are, what project or projects have you done that you felt added the most value? Have any projects increased in popularity recently at your organization? This framework positions your contact as an expert and allows your conversation to shift in tone and depth. This helps increase the chances that you will turn them into an advocate for you. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice that you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash T-A-P-I-N-T-R-I-S-T-A-N. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. My guest today on the show is Herment Matsotza. Herment is CEO of Ubuntu Speaks, LLC, a DEI and global health workforce development consulting firm dedicated to building the capacities and competencies of career professionals. The firm uses evidence-based, cross-cutting, hands-on workforce performance development training strategies leading to self-efficacy and positive work performance outcomes. Ms. Sosa is a trilingual French, Spanish, and English professional with more than 20 successful years in global health technical advising, DEI, and cross and intercultural communication expertise. Hermens, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here today. Well, I am excited to have you. 
And so I am just, you know, we were commenting before we started recording um, that today is World AIDS Day, the day that we're recording this. Yes. And so I'd like to, in honor of that, start with, um, you know, your expertise and experience in global healthcare and what led you to that field. Okay. Um, a global, you know, this day is very special to me, not only because of uh, my 20 plus years in this field, but also personally, I lost my uncle uh, my freshman year of college to HIV. Oh, I'm so and sorry. Yeah, it was, and it was at that moment, even though I knew about HIV prior to that, but when something hits home, it really, really rocks your world. And in my case, um, me being African, um, so my mother's African, uh, Gabon, and my father's American, but we were living in the United States here. And my mother being the oldest, when my brother got, when my uncle got sick, she went to Africa, she went to Gabon to help take care of him until his passing. And so it really, it, it, it impacted my family. And then when he did pass away, I had actually, I had a dream prior to him passing away that, and he came to me because I was actually close to him, even though he lived far away during the summers when I'd go visit, he was my favorite uncle. And so I had a dream that he came to me and said, you know, if there's anything you'll do for me, just let everyone know that this is not how you want to die. And I remember that. And I remember that dream. And the next day I woke up, got a call from my mother and she was like, you know, your uncle passed away. So I, and from that point on, I was determined to, to, you know, fulfill that wish of my, my uncle's wish. And so that led me into, you know, traveling, uh, joining the Peace Corps. So I joined the Peace Corps and did HIV AIDS programming and, you know, worked in small communities. Uh, I was a teacher. And so I had health, um, little health groups, clubs with the students. And we went around the markets. We went around the community everywhere talking about HIV AIDS and the importance of it and how to protect yourself and bring awareness. And so like, that is what I did with communities. And, and from Peace Corps, came back, did the same thing in DC, started youth clubs. Cause I really think that when it comes to health, we have to start with the young people. We have to start with young people because, you know, you put, once you pick up a, bad, a health behavior, good or bad, the likelihood that, you know, it will stay with you is greater if, you know, if you started young. And so my goal was to really educate, uh, help educate individuals and bring awareness to this uh, epidemic that was really at, and then at that time was really infecting and affecting communities around me. Um, so working in Washington DC at the time, it had real high rates of HIV infection, not just um, in, you know, among uh, gay um, men, but also African-American um, women and uh, men and also young Latinos. And so for me, it's, it was a epidemic that touched everybody, that touched every aspect of our lives, regardless if you knew it or not. Um, so that's how I came, you know, that's how really I, my role and my profession was solidified in this, 
industry. Uh, and so it's very important to me. It's very, and you know, from there went to Jamaica doing HIV AIDS work, St. Lucia, I was back in Africa. So it's like, it's interesting because someone once looked at my resume and said, um, wow, you know, you bleed HIV. And I was like, okay, that's a crazy way to say something during an interview. Yeah. Like, I bleed <laughs> HIV. Probably not the right <laughs> metaphor. Exactly. I was just like, okay, this is not the place I want to work at. If you feel as though <laughs> the fact that I've been doing this for, you know, all these years is a problem. But I did take, you know, I eventually understood what he was saying in the sense that I needed to somewhat diversify my, you know, portfolio. And then from there, I also did started doing um, polio work and immunization work with CDC. And But I've always gone back full circle to HIV AIDS work. And for me, more importantly, it's, it's the, the importance of providing tools, resources for, for individuals to feel as though they have, they're self-empowered to change their lives and have better health outcomes. Like at the end of the day, that's always what it's been for me. Like, what can I do to get someone to understand that they can, they can one, not get HIV, you know, but also that they can have better health outcomes based on their own behaviors, as well as coming together with their community and bringing awareness of, you know, the, the issues, the health problems that exist. Yeah. You know, I hope that answers your question. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's so much I want to dive into on that because, you know, I hear a lot of young people, you know, and depending on what age you are, right. HIV carries a much different, um, you know, kind of a different um, connotation in your mind, right? Right. So right. when the when the AIDS epidemic hit, I was in my formative years, right? I was in like, you know, grade school, middle school, right? right? And I remember very clearly, you know, I think it was like in sixth grade, I think when when Ryan White died and he was from Indiana and he was right. kind of the, you know, the only thing anybody knew about Indiana at that time was Ryan White. Um, but one of the things that it strikes me as interesting is when you talk to younger people now, they don't really understand the they impact um, that the AIDS epidemic had on, you know, an entire generation of people, maybe two generations of people, but also, you know, it's hard, it's hard to even imagine, you know, now we see commercials on TV about, you know, you can, you can take these medications and get your viral load to zero and you're completely, you know, you can't even transmit the virus, but, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, yeah. HIV was a death sentence and it was, exactly. you know, in your uncle's words, it was, it was a horrible, horrible, um, way to, horrible die, way to yeah. go. Right. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I'm curious having done all this work in public health and now we're in the middle of a global pandemic once again, um, mm -hmm. you know, with a slightly different, you know, set of, um, of stigmas and connotations around it, um, but how do you think, how do you see the parallels between what we're dealing with right now with COVID and what we were dealing with, you know, 35 or so years ago with HIV right. globally? I, you know, I does actually, sadly, there are a lot of para, uh, parallels I, um, in my view. One is this idea that it's someone else's problem. You know, mm -hmm. when... And being in this field, I, I found out about COVID early, 
prior to March and February because I was connected to a global health community. And I'll never forget being on a call where it was just like, okay, something's happening in China and uh, there's a virus you know, outbreak in China. We need to do something about it. How are we gonna communicate it to the people? Literally, that's what was said on this call. And everybody was just like, what's going on? You know, And that call was a good two hours long of everybody just kind of like, not sure what it was, but panicking. So that was a January. And I remember just thinking to myself, okay, the most important thing, I remember asking the question, how is this going to be communicated, not only to the health providers and the hospitals, but how is this going to be communicated to the communities? And everybody was like, well, every country is responsible for how they choose to communicate this information. And I, I sat back thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it was just like, all right. And so for me, it, I automatically went into this mode, like people need to know, people need to be aware. And so just like, in, uh, you know, around HIV, when you tell individuals, you know, at the time people felt like if it's not directly knocking on my door or impacting me, if it's so far away, then I don't need to worry about it. You know, and during that time it was, oh, only gay individuals are uh, get HIV. I'm not gay. And then it went to, oh, African-American, poor African-Americans are getting HIV. Uh, that's not me. Or poor. So it's like, it's always, if it's somebody else, then I shouldn't be worried about it. And I feel like that's what happened with COVID. In the beginning, it was like, oh, it's happening in China. We shouldn't, it's not going to get to our shores. We shouldn't worry about it. Oh, the outbreaks are in Europe now. Oh, we shouldn't worry about it because it's not happening. Oh, the majority of individuals who are getting it are old people. So, okay, young people shouldn't be worried about it. And then it's African, so it's just like, it's this thing where instead of us being worried for each other and taking precautions and having empathy and coming in as a community, as a people to address this pandemic or to, you know, at the time HIV, we, we fall back in our silos and our communities and point fingers as though, you know, it's not gonna affect us all. And so those are really the similarities that I see between the two. And then of course, you know, the, the rush to once it, it is clear that this is something that impacts us all, the rush to come to, to have a communication, like a message, messaging. And also like how the government, various different governments are dealing with it, you know, around when HIV came, you know, came out and it was to be, I honestly can't say the American government was like gung-ho, we're going to put funding, we're going to put money into this and take care of the people. No, it was, it was like, well, gay people shouldn't be gay. Right. <laughs> Reagan, Reagan so, was hostile. I mean, Reagan. that whole administration oh was very hostile to the gay community. Exactly. And, exactly. you know, basically said, well, that's, it's their fault, right? For being sinners. Right. That's, that's what happens to you. Yeah. Um, and religion plays a role in it. Yes. And, you know, the parallels, now that you're talking about it, the parallels are stunning, right? Because even yeah. within the, the American administration um, at the start of the COVID pandemic, you know, it was like, well, yeah, but it's just New York right and exactly they're not our people exactly. even though even though the the president was from new york which is curious <laughs> right? right i mean it, it's just it's interesting how quickly we can divide ourselves up and how quickly we can draw right. these lines around 
us versus them. Right. right? And then when we, we made don't wearing deal masks political. Like right. just like wearing a condom became political, political, even though condoms were introduced back in World War II, <laughs> you know. But all of a sudden wearing condoms became, you know, a political thing. Like yeah. it was just, you know, weird. And then now like, you know, wearing masks is a political thing. And I'm just like, it's a mask, you know, it's going to protect us all. So those, for me, those are the parallels. And at the end of the day, it's fear. And it's, you know, and with, when people ha don't know what's going on because they, they're, they're mixed messaging that's going around, they retreat. And often it's comfortable to live in that, that, that fear bubbles, like what I like to call it, because oftentimes you're not alone in that fear bubble. And so the individuals that you're with, you guys can come up with ideas and conspiracies to make yourself feel better yes. and to continue pointing the finger out. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes there are, there are whole uh, television networks dedicated oh, to that premise. So, yeah. It's, um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, so running with that just a little bit further, because you've worked on, you know, global um, health initiatives, I'm curious how much of that sentiment of that it's not my problem or it's your fault if you're sick, you know, that seems to be a very um, particularly, perhaps not exclusively, but particularly American approach to dealing with infectious disease. Um, have you found that to be true or do you see similar, um, similar responses in other cultures as well? No, there's definitely similar responses, definitely. Uh, thing is, you know, it's not just to the United States. It's not just something that is common. Um, to Americans, no, it's it's very global in the sense that I mean it's different. You know, I feel like other countries and communities have really learned from the lessons of uh, you know pandemics and epidemics. You know, and the way th things were handled in the past, and really decided to take it a uh, you know initiative to really educate individuals when it came to COVID-19, educate their community. So now they're in the forefront, whereas the United States is still lagging. Mm -hmm. However, stigma and discrimination is, I mean, it's a common, it's a sad common, you know, factor that plays in public health throughout the world. You know, there's stigma around HIV AIDS, there's stigma around, you know, yeah, not just here in the U.S., but, you know, in all the countries that I've ever worked with, the stigma around um, polio. I did a lot of polio work and immunization, even cancer. So it's like, once again, when people don't understand, you know, the health issue, when they, the messaging that's supposed to come from, you know, the, the government that's supposed to come from the agencies that are helping the communities, the leaders is all over the place. And then when people are, are, are associated with a particular health issue and stigmatized for it, then this is, this is where we end up, where, you know, point, finger pointing, where nothing really gets done, where more people end up dying, where we don't have the answers and all we can do is bicker about it. So it's not just common to the United States, but I feel like when it comes to COVID though, um, 
we were supposed to lead on that, like hands down. I honestly think with the CDC, with the um, vast expertise and health knowledge that the United States has and the, the, the number of public health professionals that are not only in the United States, but that are Americans who are living abroad and stuff, we should have been leading on this. Like there's so many reasons that we have led in other ways uh, during other health issues, even HIV AIDS. There's no reason we didn't take the lead on COVID. Um, but a lot of it is because government played a big role as to how the messages were to be disseminated to the people. And, and whereas in other countries, they decided to listen to the health experts, um, we chose the other way. Right. You know, it's interesting because I, I used to work in IT and I remember people who, um, in information technology, I remember the people who kept the servers going, right? They would say like, right. if we do our job, nobody knows we're here. Nobody understands why they're paying us, right? If we do a good right. job, nobody understands why we're here. And if we do a bad job, nobody understands why they're paying us, right? Nobody understands why <laughs> right. we're here. That's a good way, yeah. And I think a lot of times the government, you know, these government functions are similar, right? If they're out there doing a good job, it becomes part of the fabric of our society, becomes something that we can that we can um, take for granted, right? And then we right. wonder, my gosh, why do we have this big bloated government? Why do we have all these people working around the clock, you know, to protect us from these things that are never going to come to fruition, that are never going to happen, right? Um, and so then, you know, we start to wonder, like, what are we paying them for? Because they're doing their jobs. But then when, then recently, right, we've seen when they don't do their jobs, <laughs> then, or they're not allowed to do their jobs, right? Then it's a whole different set of questions same yeah. questions, but from a different perspective, what are they doing? Exactly. Why are they paying? Why are we paying them for, you know, clearly they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where, you know, um, I would like to go back to taking the CDC for granted. Can I just, yes. can I say that? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I miss not waking up every day and wondering if the CDC is going to make an announcement and yeah. You know, like those are things I, that normal people, normal everyday people who are not involved in public health policy right. really should be all that concerned with on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet right. here we are. And, you know, and having worked with CDC, there are amazing health professionals and specialists and doctors like CDC is not just, you know, Atlanta where I'm at or or uh, CDC departments within the health department, I mean, um, um, programs within the health departments, but CDC is all the footprint and the impact that CDC has made is felt all over the world. And so is WHO and so is UNAIDS and so is all these international global agencies. And, you know, even USAID when it comes to, you know, PEPFAR funding and, and Peace Corps. So like a lot of these, agencies are like their impact is felt, but because the work oftentimes is done in a manner that um, is really making a difference, we as Americans here don't hear about it as right. often, right? And so just like you said, but when it's not happening right, <laughs> then that's when we hear about it, rightfully so, you know, and I just, I, 
I left CDC in 2018 to start my own uh, global health consulting firm. And I always knew that eventually this is the direction I would go into. But working with CDC, I, as a, as a country facilitator and a technical um, uh, trainer, I worked with thousands of international public health um, professionals from communication, from data management, from, you know, immunization and pull, like all across the board. And these were individuals who were from different countries around the world and who were being brought to CDC to be trained and, and provided the tools and resources then go either back to their countries and you know really do the work that they've been uh, trained to do with the resources but also go to other countries and help other countries you know we you know our goal was to eradicate polio and to immunize you know give immunization to children and to you know deal with uh, like um various different other issues like i said hiv and all of that and you felt as though that everyone for the most part SCDC and connected to CDC and with WHO and these agencies had good intent. And it was for the betterment of the world. You genuinely felt that it wasn't always perfect and it wasn't, wasn't always done in a way that led to sustainability like we wanted to, but you knew that people genuinely had positive intent. What COVID has revealed now is that while we were everywhere else building this, helping to build infrastructures, sustainable, well, you know, somewhat sustainable infrastructures and helping everyone else out and, you know, and really building the capacity of uh, other public health professionals there and providing them the funding and the resources, it wasn't being done here. Mm. And that is really what is disheartening because COVID really showed us that our health infrastructure is fragile from yeah. overworking our public health professionals, our doctors, our nurses, our, our systems, our healthcare systems to, to, you know, I'm not going to use that word, but to not allowing the specialists within CDC, within the health departments, give out the messages that will effectively help individuals make proper health decisions when it came to COVID, to mm -hmm. not even providing PPE resources, efficient resources to places that needed them. That and really in some was cases making it more difficult to get PPE exactly, and pitting exactly. the states against each other for those resources. You know, and right. as you're talking, I, one of the questions that I had coming into this interview was, you know, how did you, how did you make that leap from, you know, public health to equity, diversity and inclusion? But I am hearing in your messaging and in your voice um, that these things are inextricably linked and there is there's no detangling them. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Like for me, you know, my first, oh, I would say my first 
grown up experience in this work because my, my father worked, was also a Peace Corps volunteer. He did international development work. My mother was very much a community organizer, a communal advocate. Like she, you know, my mother was like in the nursing homes helping, you know, individuals. That, so like that's been in Butu, which is the South African philosophy of human interconnectedness. That is the philosophy that I was raised in. That's the philosophy that made me who I am today. And so my first experience on my own where I was like, you know, I can fly and do this mom and dad on my own was when I was in Ecuador. I went to Ecuador, spun the globe. My finger landed in Ecuador. This is my junior year, was tired of school. I decided to go to Ecuador. Didn't speak Spanish, not a lick of Spanish, right? Amazing. <laughs> but I knew Amazing. they spoke Spanish there. But one thing I knew is that I had this philosophy in my heart. And this was the idea that I, in order to, to be accepted in a community, I had to first respect individuals for who they are, see them for who they are, learn from individuals and value them and realize that I, regardless of the fact that I'm American, I was there to learn from others. And so, you know, going to Ecuador, I mean, it was tough. It was a tough year. I ended up doing, uh, I was there to plant trees and do reforestation, which, I, you know, I knew nothing about, honestly. I just wanted to find a way out uh-huh. <laughs> of school. And, uh, but when I got there, you know, I was different. I ended up living in an Afro-Ecuadorian community. So yes, the people looked like me. We were all Black. However, I was not Ecuadorian. I barely spoke Spanish. I didn't have that Latino Ecuadorian culture. And so it easily could have been like, okay, this is too tough. I'm going to go home. But I, I realized that in order for me to successfully plant a tree, or in this case, teach literacy, which is what I ended up switching to, teaching individuals how to write their name, identify their name on a list so they can get an ID to be able to vote. Wow. In order for me to, to have been able to do that, I had to put myself out there and, and have people teach me and understand the nuances that come with culture and cross-culture, interculture, and how to communicate, not just verbally, but body language and the customs. I had to respect the people I was living with. And so in all the work that I've done since then, it's always been about seeing the people for who they are first before I impose what I want to do, before I ask to you know, provide them any kind of health services. It was about knowing where people are at, seeing them for who they were, respecting them for who they were, loving them even when they didn't love me yet mm-hmm. for who they were and learning from them, not just the language, but the customs, the norms, the social norms, the collective regard that that existed within the communities and having them be the one to decide to bring me in. And then at that point, collaborate with me to help them, you know, develop systems and programs that suited them. And, and the reason I bring that up is because one thing that often is missed in the work that we do as global health professionals is this idea that you could could be 
you can have the same impact regardless of what's happening in the culture, cultural norms and political strife or you know everything else. Like you can just go in as long as you have the buy-in from the political system, the government, then you're good to go. And that's not the case because regardless of how tight the government or oppressive the government may be on a community or, or you know, their country, if you go in with this idea, and I always tell people, people say, uh, you know, does this work? Oh, yes. They will nod their head and be like, yes. But really, they mean no. As soon as you leave, they're not going to do it. Are you going to vaccinate your child? Yeah. You're going to come tomorrow? Yes. They don't show up. Right. You know, <laughs> exactly. Are you, you know, you working with, you know, are you, um, gonna use condoms the next time you have uh you choose to have sex oh yeah yeah definitely but then you find out that this is a woman who really is not empowered enough to ask her significant other to use a condom because she fears possibly being hurt if she does or someone who gets more money if she doesn't use a condom and she needs that money to feed her children like so you have to understand that and and it and that I think often is what's missing. And then you know, I always say, you know, if you can learn statistics and biochemistry, you can learn a language. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. You can learn a language. And so too many of health professionals, particularly I feel like American health professionals, forget the importance of learning a language. And you don't even have to leave the country for you to be able to be able to use the language you learn. But let's get real. English is not the only language that's spoken in this world. <laughs> and so learn Spanish, learn French, learn, you know, Mandarin, learn like Portuguese and whatever, and learn local languages if you go into a community. You know, I used to go to villages um, all the time, like in northern part of Nigeria, wherever I did my work. And although I, I brought a translator with me, an interpreter with me, excuse me, I brought an interpreter and someone to help me, you know, really teach me about the way of the people, like I like to call it. Um, but I still knew how to say hello in that language. I knew how to say hello, thank you. And in some languages, I see you mm. and I am here for you. Like I knew how to say that on my own. And that carries a lot of weight when you're coming as a foreigner, when you're coming as a stranger or in some, you know, in Togo, they say as a Yovo, you're coming in and asking people to work with you. It carries a lot of weight when you make the effort to show that you understand and respect their customs, even if you may not know the depth of it. And, you know, you're dealing with some very personal issues as well, right? right. And so it's not like you can just come in and be the expert right. um, when you're talking about people's bodies and people's mm-hmm. sexual habits um, yeah. or sexual activities or their, you know, their most intimate relationships. Right. And I, you know, I love what you said about, you know, if you can learn all these things, you can learn a language. One of the one of the things that I tell people is, you know, if you can learn public speaking or you can learn Excel spreadsheets, you can learn empathy, right? right. Empathy is also a skill. Right. And we tend to see that, you know, a lot of times as, well, it's something that you have or you don't have, 
right? And that's not true, right? It's not a third eye. It's not, (laughs) you know, it's not being left-handed versus right-handed is a skill and you can practice it and you can build it. And, you know, it sounds like in all of the work that you've done, you've started there and that's led you other places. It has. And that is one of the reasons why I felt like my time at CDC was, was great. You know, um, I, I feel like with the organization, I was able to make the impact that I wanted to make, but I also wanted to be able to do this on my own in the sense of, and not be, you know, restrained by the bureaucracy that exists within government agencies, within international agencies and be restrained by, um, you know, the politics of it, even though as an entrepreneur, you still have to deal with a lot of that. But I, I didn't want to, to have that or to feel muzzled, you know, and I wanted to, you know, to be compassionate, to have empathy without being seen as weak, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And be able to practice all those skills that I learned and just be, just be, just be that public health professional that believes in the people. When I was in Togo as a Peace Corps volunteer, one of the first cultural experiences that uh, I had so many of them, but one of them was the name. I came in introducing myself as Herman Smitsotsa. That's my name. That's what my mother gave me. You know, that's my name. That's what I've had since birth. And I got there and I remember introducing myself and one of the uh, women that was, you know, that had brought me in and who was, who had been assigned per se to, you know, introduce me to the community. She was like, oh, that's not your name. Don't say that. And I was like, what? She was like, that's not your name here. That's not your name. And I was like, why not? She was like, oh, the chief is going to give you a name. That's not your name. I was like, uh, that's what my mother gave me. But I didn't say that to her. I was just like, okay. But in my me- in my mind, I had those Allie McBeal, you know, moments where I was like, what? Yeah. That's my name. Like, oh, you remember the show, right? So yeah, the cutaways. Fact- and then she'd tell you what she was really thinking. And then you'd go exactly. back. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, how dare they want to change my name? But I understood that there was, had to be a purpose and a reason for this, right? And so she was like, oh, you'll get your name in a few days. No worry, you'll get your name. So I spent a week, almost, no, more than a week. It was like two weeks. I started going to the schools. Nobody was calling me. Like nobody addressed me by my name. It was either, if they addressed me at all, it was the American. L'Americain, L'Americain. So, and I, I was just like, they all know my name like I think they do like Peace Corps said they they told them my name and no one was calling me and people were just really observing me from a distance right and so then eventually about a week and a half maybe two weeks later someone knocks on my door and says oh American the chief wants to see you so I'm like okay of course when the chief asks to see you you go, like you're the only foreigner in this village. You're not gonna say no to the chief. Right. So I get, you know, I go and I had already, you know, did my my research and study. Like you have to dress a certain way when you see the chief. It has to be your best outfit, you know? And so I did that and I'm taken to the chief 
and he, you know, and he has everybody around him indicates for me to sit down and I sit down and then he says, welcome. And in my head, I'm like, I've been here for almost two weeks. You're just now saying welcome to me, but you know what? I'm not the arrogant American right now, you know? So, so like in my head, all this stuff was happening and right. I can hear my mom's voice saying, be quiet, be quiet. Just keep your mouth shut. Right. And then, um, he was like, he, he looks at me and he tells everybody from this day forward, you will call her Imana too. And everybody starts cheering and screams Imana too. And that's my name now. And I was like, Imana too. Like, didn't explain to me what it even meant or anything. And so then I get up and, you know, I, you know, do the traditional bow and I'm taken out. And the lady was like, congratulations, you got the best name ever. And I was like, okay, what does my name mean? <laughs> like, right. what does it mean? And she's like, oh, it means, it means the one, because I was in a Muslim community, it means the one who believes in the people. I said, the one wow. who believes in the people. She was like, yeah, it was Muhammad, Muhammad's mother's name. Um, she believed in the people. So Imanatu means the one who believes in the people and who is for the people. And I was just like, okay. And I asked her, how did, it, how did he come up with that name? He was like, he asked everybody. I said, he what? He was like, yeah. That's why people watched who I was and how I moved. Wow. And that's the name they came up. They realized that I was the one, my name should be monitored because I believed in the people. And for me, like, it's still an emotional experience and I can recall it because that's essentially who I was, am, and continue to str and strive to be. The one who believes in the people, the one who's for the people, who believes that the people themselves collectively together can resolve problems, can given the, the knowledge, the skills and the resources can come together and be one. And that wouldn't have happened if I would have, listen to my thoughts and been like, this is a crazy culture, what they're about to name me. <laughs> like, you know, if I would have just like right. let all of this other stuff, you know, come into that because it was at the end of the day, it was a beautiful moment. And then after that, like the only time I knew that someone was coming to see me or whatever, a for, you know, foreigner into my village or my other Peace Corps volunteers, they were the only ones who called me her mess. Everybody else called me Monitu. When people came to visit, they were like, oh, we want to speak to Hermes. They're like, who? You would have to say the American. And, you know, and I share that with you today because that is for many cultures, it's about who you are and not specifically what you choose to be, to call yourself a be. It's who you are for the people, how you fit into the collective, how you fit into the community. So it's this, I am who I am because we all are. We are intrinsically bound in each other's humanity, in each other's experience. And if until we recognize that, we will continue to have pandemics and epidemic, you know, and health issues and 
you know, societal issues and race and problems in this country when we are busy thinking that we are not part of each other's lives, that we are not bound by each other, that your experience doesn't affect me in some way. That we are somehow on parallel it's, timelines that coexist exactly. and that we don't, that we right. never cross. Yeah. Right. Oh right. my goodness. What a beautiful story. And uh, <laughs> I'm you. sure, I'm sure I'm not the only one listening to it thinking, wow, I wonder how bad I would have screwed that up. And my name would have been like town jerk or something. <laughs> <laughs> but for you to, for them to have watched you and for them to have teased out um, exactly right. who you are and for you to have shown mm -hmm. up so authentically as you. Um, yeah. I think speaks volumes about the kind of person that you are as well. Right. And we all can do that, you know. It requires realizing that we are bound up in each other's humanity, that you have to see the humanity in each other. So when you show up in a space that you're not familiar with, you humble yourself. You, you can take up space without being the center of attention. And that's what, you know, when it comes to diversity and inclusion, you know, that we both do, it's, this is why I, for me, it's important. I, I, it's important for me to talk about cross and intercultural communication in the diversity work that we do. And not just verbal, but nonverbal, because that's how we communicate half the time is through what we say and how we act and what we do. And the way we do that is very much based on our own experiences and cultural background and all of that. But when you show up in a space with someone else who is quote different from you on the surface, um, you have to be willing to humble yourself and be curious enough, genuinely curious enough to want to know not only what makes that person different from you or unique from you, but how what commonalities exist between the two of you that is deeper than what we see or what we hear sometimes. And, and that aspect of not of letting ego run our lives, I think is one of the reasons why sometimes as Americans, we get a bad name overseas or in other communities. I think that is also one of the reasons why we have difficulties, you know, coming to the table and listening to each other, uh, regardless of how powerfully different our point of views are. Uh, where where we say that you know we agree to disagree really doesn't mean much because when we do disagree half the time that ends the conversation. You know, so it, it is about um, being able to be in the space but not feel like you have to be the center. Um, and the, you know be that elephant. <laughs> I don't know. But, no, I understand, and it yeah. you know, and I think it's true. Well, yeah. Hermens. Imanatu, did I pronounce that correctly? Imanatu, yes. Imanatu Matsotsa, thank you so much for you. Um, your time, your expertise, and for sharing your stories with us today. I greatly appreciate it. And we're back. Listen, I have to thank Amy C. Wanniger. Look, we have not been able to get our schedules together, 
but we're gonna come back because I love our what's the word rat attack is that it rat attack because right now it's a lot of rat no tat you know do you know what I'm talking about look if you know that reference if you know the reference I just made hit me up on Twitter I got something for you uh, but no I miss Amy we're gonna bring it back where we're like co-hosting this thing y'all we tired man it's tough out here it's a tough it's a tough 21 it's a tough 2021 and when you're only 16 days in golly um take care of yourselves y'all until next time i love y'all this has been zach peace living corporate is a podcast by living corporate llc our logo was designed by david dawkins our theme music was produced by ken brown Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.